Welcome to Unedited, our fortnightly podcast where we explore the opportunities and challenges the retail industry is facing. From fashion, beauty and homeware, I will chat to leading experts in the industry to shed light on how retailers can create a brighter future. So following the ongoing push for greater diversity in retail and fashion, inclusive representation needs to be apparent across all categories and trends in products and advertising. In 2020, we saw more retailers such as Tommy Hilfiger and Pretty Little Thing focusing on inclusivity. And this included adding products to their assortment that support modest dressing. On the edited platform, we tracked 10% of shops stocking hijabs compared to just 2% in 2019. This is continuing to grow this year. So Sweaty Betty kicked off 2021 with its New Year's campaign, Respect Your Sweat, starring a mature roller skater, a hijab wearing boxer, a model with vitiligo, and two athletes with disabilities. However, despite this growth, it's important to understand that modest fashion is not a trend, it's how people live. So on today's podcast, we have Gislan Guinez, former CEO of The Modest. Welcome to Unedited, Gislan. We're thrilled and very excited to have you join us. How are you and, and how's life in sunny and warm Dubai? Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to speak with you today, Grace. Good. Life is good considering the circumstances globally and, you know, that we're all living a pandemic. I, you know, I think good. Yeah. Um, Beautiful weather. I'm fortunate to have a nice terrace. So I kind of, you know, get out there and breathe some fresh air. I can imagine. Don't make me too upset, but what's the temperature? It's probably around 27 degrees, so it's perfect for the beach. (laughs) That sounds heavenly. Yeah, I think it's a pretty solid five degrees here today, but it's better than it has been. It's been really cold, so I'm I'm thrilled about that. But I'd love to start by hearing more about your journey, and obviously the modus was one part of that, but why did you just decide to start it on International Women's Day back in 2017? Sure. So, so the journey started with me being in the finance industry for about 14 years. And yeah. you know what that space is like. It was male dominated. You had to dress a certain way. And so, but I've always loved fashion. And so that conservative work appropriate attire and my love of fashion was always mm-hmm. kind of something that uh, made me experience what shopping for a woman who is looking for both yeah. was like. And many years later, I left the industry and um, decided to start a modus to tackle precisely that problem. And so the idea was to create a destination for women who love to dress modestly and equally love fashion. And that could be, you know, a religious woman or, you know, an executive or a professional. It could be just a style preference for whatever reason. We were agnostic as a platform, but it was, you know, addressing her needs and offering her style inspiration and, you know, making her feel included in the world of fashion. Totally. I love that as well. Like I've heard you on previous interviews as well. It wasn't that you wanted to get into fashion or you wanted to launch an e-commerce business, right? It's because you really understood the need and you empathize with that customer because you've lived it and, you know, you are that customer. 
And I think as well, like I'm fascinated by obviously your finance background as well. And obviously the experience that that's brought, because I think the more that the wonderful women that I speak to on this podcast, you know, Connie Nam is an example as well, who's CEO of Astrid and Me You, and she has that finance background. Like from your experience, like what do you think, how did that help you get you to kind of give you the skills to where you are to be today? Sure. So to be to be totally clear, actually, I was in the finance industry, but I was more in the communications, brand building, and stakeholder right. engagement side of things. So sure. it was more around building partnerships and that space. But I was, of course, I was privy to to the world of investment and finance. But more than the numbers side of it, it was it was the discipline of being in a space like that, which was yeah. fast paced, which was around getting things done. And I was fortunate to have been in a company for that long. It was one business. I started as the third employee and I left when the company was massive across a number of continents. So I also saw vision, growth, execution, and it's these transferable skills that I would say really helped me in, in setting up the modest. I can imagine. I feel like that's such a unique perspective as well to be there from like right at the start and the growing pains. Like that's what a lot of, you know, early employees talk about and kind of those challenges, which I'm sure were so fantastic and, you know, helpful in supporting you. So could you tell our listeners a little bit more about the business that was the modest and the model it adopted and, and also most importantly, the values that it stood for? Sure. So as you said, we launched on International Women's Day and it wasn't by coincidence. It was truly a business that authentically was by women for women. And we were all about, you know, I think women empowerment has been so overused that it sounds like a cliche, but it was truly around, you know, magnifying women's power. I truly believe that we're all powerful as women and it's about echoing that and and being the megaphone for one another. And that's what the modest was. Uh, As a business, it was an e-commerce business, an e-tailer. We were in the luxury fashion space. We launched with 75 brands at the time. And a couple of few years later, we had around 200. The brands that you would know, like Dolce & Gabbana, Valentino, and all these you know, beautiful brands curated for modesty. So when a woman you know, comes to our site, she doesn't have to worry about the clothes and the pieces that are not relevant to her. And she's got everything curated to her liking. And for people who are not necessarily familiar with modesty, it's a spectrum. But generally speaking, we're talking about long sleeves, long hems, covered necklines. And imagine trying to find a dress that is, you know, not strapless or sleeveless or has lace or a slit. And you get a sense on how frustrating and time consuming the shopping experience can be. Absolutely. And it's not like there's even necessarily e-commerce sites were built to enable the customer to filter on that either, right? You know, there was like, you know, just filtering by even those nuances that you've spoken to, I can imagine was challenging. So in terms of like from your experience, and this is more, I guess, about your journey as an entrepreneur, how would you empower women who also may have a business idea and are looking at embarking on that journey and also just like the mindset that's required to kind of be resilient and successful? 
Sure. I think there's something about entrepreneurship that's been quite glamorized in the last few <laughs> years. And I think I would start by, by saying qualify whether that's actually what you want to do, because there are so many ways to be successful in life. Mm-hmm. And entrepreneurship is, is one journey, but it's not the only journey. And it takes a certain type of person and certain sacrifices to actually be in that space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so a, do you really want to be an entrepreneur? And so do you really have an idea that is solving a problem or either wh- whether it's a new problem or an existing one that you're solving in a different, more innovative way or for a different geography, whatever that may be. And then once you've clarified that in your mind, I would say what you said is spot on your mindset. You have to have a winning mindset mm-hmm. of I'm going to be facing hurdles through this journey. And this is all about finding solutions and navigating that space and Mm -hmm. knowing that, you know, my outlook is one of, I will achieve what I want to achieve so long as I put my mind and the discipline and the effort into it. I would say resilience, which also you mentioned is the name of the game, grit and resilience. It's all about powering through and just, you know, continuing to push in one day, you're cu- you're kind of up and down, and the journey is just so not linear. Yeah. And finally, I would say, and this is specifically for us women, once you've started that journey, share the wins, take up space. I think us women believe that not talking about our successes is kind of being humble. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, it's you know part of our bringing is around shrinking ourselves, whether it is in terms of what we do or in terms of the space, physical space we take, like sit a certain way and be slimmer and all of that stuff. So I think it's so important for us to share the learnings and share the successes and the ups and all of that Mm -hmm. so that other women get excited because it's only by seeing models that, that, you know, you encourage others. Definitely. No, I, I completely agree. It has been glamorized, you know, this, this idea of entrepreneurship and you see kind of like the Emily Vices of, you know, the Glossier world and all of these amazing women. But I think people, it's just taking that step back and understanding the sacrifice and the pressure and, you know, the resilience that is required to build a business and, and be so successful. And I know you've spoken before in previous interviews about make sure you do your due diligence and make sure you do your, your planning what would you say are like your golden rules? Like what questions would you make sure have been answered before you kind of jump straight in? I mean, the the most important thing I would say is what is the problem you're solving? Yeah. Are you really bringing a solution to the table? Mm-hmm. Like flush that out and truly understand yeah. it. I think equally important is your customer, understanding your customer in every possible way. How is their current experience? What will you add to that? How can you kind of remove any frictions from their experience? How are you going to offer them something that's relevant? If we take modesty, for an example, one of the main things that I see that actually bother me every now and then (laughs) is that there isn't truly an understanding of the modest customer. And you can't really, you know, there are nuances and there are certain, you know, just qualities and characteristics around this customer and what she's looking for. And so you truly need to understand that. Then you've got to build your business plan and understand your numbers and, and embark on the journey. Yeah. No, I feel like that's really great advice. And I think definitely understanding the problem and the customer, like you said, like just doing research 
it was an education for me as to like what truly is modest fashion and knowing that that is a spectrum. So obviously you've mentioned resilience and perseverance that's required. And it kind of goes without saying that you have faced unprecedented challenges off the back of what 2020 brought. So obviously you had to take the difficult decision to cease the operations of the modest last year. So how did you deal with the perception of failure personally, but also professionally? Yeah. Look, I mean, failure isn't fun. Let's just, you know, put it out. I think, you know, there's so much conversation now around failure. And I think because of what had happened to many businesses and continues to happen, sadly. Yeah. But the truth is that, you know, let's be realistic. It's actually, you know, we wake up in the morning, we want to win and we want to succeed. Yeah. The truth is that the only way you don't fail in life, in every possible aspect, whether it's relationships or, or professionally mm-hmm. is by being, you know, bang in the middle of your comfort zone, stagnant, not moving at all. Yeah. And there's no growth and no fun in that. Mm-hmm. And so, so for me, you know, when it happened, of course, it was very difficult for a number of reasons for a team that we've built for the fact that it closed for the wrong reasons, mm-hmm. but and for the customers and the community that we had. And, and the other important thing is that failure is very stigmatized in societies, yeah. some societies more than others. But I think that there are a couple of things. I think number one, failure is an event that happens to you. It's not part of your identity. We all go through it. Like if you, <laughs> if you read any person who's achieved great things. If you read their biographies, you'll see how many failures they'd gone through. Mm -hmm. That's, that's, that's one. I think number two, the knowledge that you've done everything that you can as a person to have, you know, tried to save a business or do your part is, is always something that helps. And I think I was, I mean, I was quite open about it and my social media is, is public. And there was a lot of response from our community when we closed that was quite heartwarming so I had to I found that being open and vulnerable about it and honest about it because there's nothing wrong I we took a risk we did everything we can and this happened and I think it's our responsibility as whether it's entrepreneurs or you know women in the workplace or, or women in general, people in general, to share these stories because it's so important to uh, encourage people to take risk and, you know, to explore their potential. Otherwise, we're just crippled by fear. Totally. I think it's so refreshing for you to hear that, right? Like, you know, if you don't take risks, life's boring, you know, you're not challenging yourself, yeah. you're not pushing yourself out of your comfort zone and just acknowledging that not every risk you take is going to work out in exactly the way that you'd hoped. And it's it's a learning experience, ultimately. Oh. And I'm sure you've learned a lot from this whole process, which... Oh, yeah. <laughs> MBAs, I would say. Yes, I'm sure, I'm sure. Most people can teach you, of course. 100%. So I guess kind of going back to modest fashion, I know we've you've touched on it already, but for our listeners who maybe haven't you know, aren't as immersed in it or haven't you kind of educated themselves on what that is? Like, what is modest fashion and what are the fundamentals that must be kind of covered? Sure. So modest fashion, the name has been used probably for the last maybe five years or so, Mm -hmm. the labeling, but truly it's a way of life for for many women. Mm -hmm. And as I said earlier, it's a spectrum, but essentially what it is, is women who dress in a demure way, in a more conservative has also a bit of a negative connotation, but in a more covered up way. And I say spectrum because when you think of religious women across faiths, then there are some who are 
extremely stringent with how they want to dress and how much they want to cover. But then on the other side of the spectrum, you have women who love it as a style preference. I mean, she just loves the long sleeve, whether it is because of age or whether because she finds it more elegant, whatever that reason may be. And so it's all about that lifestyle. There are so many reasons, as I mentioned, as to why women dress that way, but it's a, it's a huge market and it's completely underserved. And so if you think about it from the luxury space, in that space, modest fashion is around $44 billion. And if you think of Muslim spent, that's around $250 billion and growing. So, so it's quite huge and quite yeah, large as a market. I guess it's fascinating, right, that when you say those numbers out loud, you know, Hmm. the fact that it is a community that has been so underserved. And I think when you mentioned it as well, you know, I think it has that kind of everyone just immediately thinks of modest fashion as being linked to religion and kind of ethnicity and culture when actually there is so many other reasons that women may want to dress modestly, whether that's professionally or... Correct. For their age. And it's interesting you you say that because you asked earlier about the values of the modest and, uh, you know, we had many values like inclusivity in the sense that it was an agnostic platform and it was all about fashion and functionality. It didn't matter what the woman, you know, what the reason was behind her dressing modestly. We spoke about women, you know, advancement and empowerment, but another one was breaking stereotypes. And Mm -hmm. that's specifically because modesty is very stereotyped as religious, Muslim, hijab, older women, boring, and kind of smashed all of those in how we did things in the modest and, and shifting it into, you know, cool and diverse and quite versatile. Totally. And I guess as well, in terms of kind of elements and attributes that are covered in kind of a modest collection, you know, what things should people be looking out for? Is that kind of hemline length, sleeve length, yeah. what are the other nuances that I guess that maybe people may not have considered? Sure. So in the modest, we kind of, because we were not looking at it from a religious or cultural perspective, oh. we, were fine. we were more flexible and we took a space in that spectrum that was around long sleeves, but it could be three quarter or full sleeve. Mm-hmm. The hemlines would be maxi, but that sometimes we do a midi. The necklines are covered and, you know, no sheer fabric in general, but where we had fun and where our customers actually absolutely loved the platform is the styling. So we would actually buy the sleeveless dress, but we would style it with, you know, a very, you know, cool shirt underneath it, or we would, you know, buy a skirt and style it with something underneath. And so that style inspiration was something that was quite attractive for our our community and customers. Yeah, I think seeing that kind of aspirational imagery and lifestyle imagery, and they could see themselves in it and, you know, beautifully curated, as you said, it's such a time consuming process previously. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing as well that I found really interesting is, you know, even like the consideration of space between buttons. And, you know, things like that, that you need to think about or opacity of, you know, fabric. We had our own private label called Layer, our own brand. And uh, this was one of the considerations is the space between buttons. And it came Mm -hmm. from our own customers. We had, you know, kind of a very strong community and engaged with it. And this was one of the things is I don't want to use a safety pin anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Those buttons closer so yeah you're right there 
Oh, and I guess, you know, the mode is shipped to 120 different countries. But I mm-hmm. think what's also really interesting is that 40% of those customers were based in America. So right. could you kind of talk more about the global demand of modest fashion outside of the Middle East and, and that diversity that exists? Yeah. So because of the diversity of the reasons as to why women dress that way, they are everywhere in the world, truly mm-hmm. everywhere. And when I tell you we've received orders from probably everywhere in the world, I wouldn't be lying. Yeah. The U.S. was indeed one of our largest markets, followed by the Middle East, but that's because those are the two that we focused on. But, you know, China is relevant, Europe, the U.K. was a growing market for us. So she's, she's everywhere. And the interesting thing is that whenever I speak to any woman, or for example, when we used to speak to brands, the minute we start showing them imagery of what modesty was to the modest and the women we wanted to serve, every woman saw herself there, whether she dressed modestly every day or whether it was on occasion because it was appropriate or whatever that may be. I think once you bring fashion and styling to the equation, you break the, that barrier of modesty versus not. Totally. And I think like, obviously we've spoken about modesty, even though it's become kind of this macro trend in the past five years, and it's, there's definitely been a spotlight that's been shone on it. In 2020, we saw the likes of Tommy Hilfiger, even fast fashion brands like Pretty Little Thing embracing modest fashion. You know, we saw different hijab lines being launched. Why do you think there's been a rise in modest fashion now? I think there are a number of reasons. I think that, you know, definitely all the conversations that are happening around the size of the market and the attractiveness of the customer Mm -hmm. uh, is one that is opening up the eyes of brands and retailers to that space. The unfortunate thing is that most of the time they're not addressed in the right way. And I think it's so important, and I've said this before, that when you're addressing a niche, or a minority. It's so important to be sensitive to the nuances around how they dress or, you know, ultimately you're, you're kind of serving a need. So you really need to understand what that need is and how it it should be served in a relevant and meaningful way. I think another reason other than the market opportunity is also just a conversation on social media. I mean, modest women and modest dressers existed for as long as you know, I mean, women existed. Yeah. Women dressed that way for ages and ages. But social media brought that community together. And so a woman in Australia or Indonesia is now having a conversation with, you know, a woman in New York and they're both female, they're, they're both modest dressers and they're both talking yeah, this is how we dress, exchanging tips or, you know, speaking about the values of the community and, and sharing all of that. So I think social media has truly powered the conversation within the community and highlighted its strength. It's really, really interesting. I guess, like, as you said, it's bringing people together and connecting people, which social media for its flaws has also had that amazing, created that opportunity for so many communities. So, In terms of, you know, we've seen the likes of kind of DKNY, Dolce & Gabbana, Mango have created Ramadan collections. Mm. How would you kind of recommend brands approach such important events like Ramadan, Eid? And are there any other key events, I guess, going back to knowing that customer that, that should be catered to? Hmm. So I think now we're, we're we're not just talking modesty. Now we're talking modesty, Middle East slash Islam as well. And and this is kind of, you know, cultural 
and also religious. I would say when it comes specifically to Ramadan and, you know, collections pertaining to that, I think having a real good knowledge of the customer and what they're looking for and what the latest trends are is so important. We've seen it over and over that, you know, global brands who are amazing at what they do, once they try and do a kaftan, for example, they don't really study and understand what's happening in the market. Because as an example, here in the Middle East, there are so many very young brands that are doing amazing things in terms of kaftans. And so sometimes the shapes and the colors that you see some brands bring to the region are a bit outdated in terms yeah. of you know what's been happening here. And so I would say either be in that region as in like truly be amongst the customers and understand what the trends are or have someone there kind of, you know, share that knowledge and then deliver something that marries that information together with the essence of your brand and the beauty of your brand and and all of that. I think that's the winning combination. I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because you hear it so often when brands get it so wrong, they don't immerse themselves in that culture, that country and truly understand. And it was when I was hearing the CEO of Gucci and how they, you know, had teams that were based in China and then they were also experts on the Gucci brand. So they were able to kind of marry those two together to create products. And I think, you know, you hear a lot about, you know, Saudi Arabian women and obviously that they've, you know, recently in recent years been given the privilege to drive their own cars. And in the future, they're going to be able to have the opportunity to set up their own companies without the permission of a man. What is the impact of these societal shifts kind of on the modest fashion consumers wants and needs for her wardrobe? Sure. I think I want to first comment on on something. I, I don't think driving a car is a privilege. It's a right. And I'm yes. very happy that we are making progress in, you know, in, in this region. And I think that things like this actually exist everywhere. They're probably magnified in our region, mm-hmm. you know, but we hear them even in first world countries like America. Sure. Um, what I would say is, of course, there is a shift that's happening. And of course, there is progress. I mean, I have to say, having been in the region and from the region, mm-hmm. I know that there's so much that's been happening for the longest time in terms of women being productive and being scientists and political leaders and all of that for, for as long as you know I can remember, but it is shifting and it will have an impact because that means that the number of women going out to work, going to concerts, going to, you know, public events is going to increase and it's bound to to increase their need for modest dressing because both culturally and religiously and in terms of trend in general, modesty is a very kind of ubiquitous in the region and in Saudi Arabia. It's it's going to impact its growth and um, attractiveness. Definitely. And and I guess in terms of the impact on its growth and attractiveness, it would be good to understand, you know, what are the untapped, would you say, where you are today, like the untapped category opportunities for modest fashion, non-specific to active wear? Because obviously we've, you know, we've heard both Nike and Under Armour launching hijabs for sport, but there must be more opportunities out there that are currently still underserved. Sure, sure. I think I think it would be a little misleading to kind of club all modesty into one yeah. 
and imagine that there will be verticals that apply to all of them. I'm yet to come across one that applies because it's such a diverse audience and it's huge. And so let's take, for example, if you're looking at, you know, modesty for Jewish women who do it for religious reasons, maybe hair and wigs would be, you know, a category that's very relevant to them. Maybe for certain Muslim women, halal beauty products is relevant to them. So I think you need to kind of go a little deeper into dissecting the market and the customer and then understanding that it's a lifestyle. And then from that, deriving what the categories are. But, you know, there's bound to be some needs in the beauty space, hair and skincare, all of these spaces. And probably even maybe travel, food. It's a lifestyle in terms of the constituency of customers. Yeah. And I think you're, you're totally right. Right. It's like remembering it's a spectrum. It's a diverse group of, you know, individuals and needs that are required. And it's not like a broad brush stroke that you can apply to everybody. And I guess that leads me quite nicely when you were talking about beauty and travel and what those opportunities lead. But obviously you've mentioned kind of Muslim spending power being estimated at like you know, over $250 billion on clothing specifically. And this is expected to reach $373 billion by 2022 as Muslim women's purchasing power grows. In your eyes, what does the future look like for modest fashion, not just specific to kind of Muslim women and who are dressing for religious reasons? Look, I think it's only going to grow you know, given the constituencies of customers that pour into this, you know, pool of modest dressers, it's only going to grow. And I think that, you know, the way you think about it is that it's women who love fashion, at least, you know, a good majority of them love fashion. And so there, they'll be excited for the same trends that are taking place in fashion. They'll be interested in things that are lifestyle related, like, you know, of course, we've spoken about athleisure, but whatever is happening in life in general, in terms of trend and in fashion and these spaces is going to touch that woman somehow. And it'll be the translation of it into that modest space uh, where relevant, of course. So I think it's it's only going to grow and we're only going to understand that customer more and more. I mean, it's very exciting and such an exciting space and for you to kind of be such an expert in, in that area. But what I would love to know is what does your next chapter entail, Guzlan? I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not done with this space. Uh, it's, it's a space that I understand. I understand the customer. I am the customer. I still see a very big gap in the space. And so, you know, I'd love to kind of, you know, see how I can speak to the customer, engage with the community and just continue in this space, given, you know, the knowledge and the passion around it so I would I would say stay tuned (laughs) stay tuned well we cannot wait to hear because as you you said I think the passion is what is you know the most obvious thing that comes across and the passion that you have to help serve this community and these women who want to dress modestly for whatever reason that that is so we ask all of our guests this but what is the one thing that you would love our listeners to take away from this episode I think I would say that if you're truly passionate about something with discipline, with work, and with perseverance, you're bound to achieve it. 
despite failures, despite trials. So don't get disheartened by that and understand that you actually go back not having lost, but actually having gained knowledge and experience. And it's a launch pad for your next thing. Totally. Very wise words and something that I <laughs> try to live by them. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'll be taking that on board as I continue throughout my week <laughs> and life. As a listener of ours, we're here to support you throughout 2021. If you're a customer of Edited, please contact your dedicated account manager and retail strategist, and they'll do everything they can to support you. For all of our listeners, ensure you're subscribed to our insider briefing. Sign up at edited.com, where we'll be keeping you all updated on the latest news and strategies. If you've enjoyed today's conversation with Gislan, please make sure you subscribe to keep in the loop with future episodes. And we'd love it if you could tell your friends or family about us. And if you have any further questions, you can get in contact with us at unedited at edited.com or tweet us at edited underscore HQ. Thanks and bye.